Well, for us, it was March 29th. Our first son, Christopher, was born. His due date was actually May 5th, which meant he was six weeks premature. The week before his birth, uh, Dinah spent in the hospital because uh, uh, she had severe pain and uh, they, severe pain in her kidneys, and they thought she was experiencing kidney stones, which is not, so you can't treat the pain uh, when you're that, that far along in pregnancy. Well, it turned out she was not pregnant, or she was, she, she was pregnant. Uh, whoops. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, she did not have kidney stones, though. Christopher was sitting on her kidney and causing the same pain that kidney stones do. Well, after a week in the hospital and uh, figuring this out, and uh, we went home, and the next evening, Dinah's water broke to our surprise, and we headed back to the hospital, and ready or not, we were having a baby that day. At, uh, uh, at one point, uh, when we were in, the, in labor, the nurse turned to Dinah and said that she was in transition. And I explained that we had only had three of six Lamaze classes, and we didn't know what that meant. And then a little bit later, uh, they said she could begin to push, and I explained that we only had three Lamaze classes, and we had no idea what it meant to push. So after getting that explained, uh, uh, we delivered this newborn baby son. We were thrilled and overwhelmed, and we thought the hardest part was behind us. <laughs> well, after the a feeding later that day, they, the nurses took Christopher back to the nursery because they were monitoring him closely, and they noticed that his breathing had, was, had become labored, and uh, they discovered that he had pneumonia. Uh, and so the doctors came and told us that he might not live through the night. And so all that night, Dinah and I wept before the Lord and begged the Lord for the life of our son. By the morning, his breathing had, had returned to normal, and Christopher, uh, what Christopher had done was, in his immaturity, breathe milk into his lungs, and it produced the same effect as having pneumonia. Well, Dinah got to come home from the hospital, but Christopher stayed for another week or so, and we were going back and forth so that his premature body could, could continue to develop under their care. Then one day, we went to the hospital to be with him and feed him, and they said, uh, he's yours now. You can take him home and care for him. <laughs> we explained that we only had three Lamaze classes. And we were just 27 years old, and we knew very little about how to care for a child. What were they thinking, giving us a child to raise? Well, we learned really quickly that the hardest part wasn't over, that life was still ahead of us, and that we had to, it wasn't going to be easy, and that we had to, uh, to approach this child rearing with faith. You trust the Lord to, to do what you know to do, and you trust the Lord with those things that you just don't know what to do. We felt very ill-equipped for the task of raising this child. 
For those of you who have experienced the birth of a child or received that call that your adoption or foster care had, was coming through, and think about what, how incapable you felt of raising this child, this helpless child that had been entrusted to your care. Now women, think of yourself as having your first child and you are between 13 and 15 years old. And men, you're 18 to maybe mid-20s. You're not in a hospital, but you're in a cave that's being used as a stable. You've given birth to your first child, who happens to be the promised savior of the world. And he's yours to take care of. There will be songs written about this night, but it's no silent night for you. You know what the angel told you about this child. You know the promises of God about the, the Savior, the Messiah. But for now, you're just too young, too inexperienced, and too overwhelmed by this miraculous birth and thinking that God would entrust you to raise his son. A few hours from now, a group of shepherds are going to come and and show up as the first visitors of this newborn king. Uh, they're going to tell the stories of angels speaking to them and singing to them, and what, what, telling them what had happened and what they needed to look for. Setting aside their responsibilities of these sheep, they leave them and go and find this child. And then throughout the crowded streets of Bethlehem, because it was packed with visitors who had come to register for the census, these shepherds become the first messengers of the Savior. A Savior is born to us. That's usually where we stop the story. We turn the page and we look toward a new year and make New Year's resolutions or figure out what we need to do and what needs to happen in the week after Christmas. But it's just December 26, I thought. New Year's starts next week. So I thought I would investigate and share with you what I found about what happens in the days and weeks after the birth of our, this Savior Jesus. What goes on with Mary and Joseph and Jesus? And actually, we have some information about that through a series of encounters that are recorded in Matthew 2 and Luke 2. And we know the Jewish traditions that Mary and Joseph would follow. So after I started looking at these uh, uh, sequence of encounters with people over the weeks and months uh, following his birth, I realized that those who came to see Jesus had a common characteristic. It's a common characteristic that you and I can cultivate in our lives too. Mary and Joseph had clearly been demonstrating it over the, over the weeks of this pregnancy. The working class, uneducated, poor shepherds demonstrated it. We'll see that an elderly man and a widow in the temple show it. Even the, the wise men coming from the east demonstrate uh, that even they as Gentiles could demonstrate and live out this characteristic. So what's the characteristic that the poor and the rich, the male and the female, the old and the young, the educated and uneducated, the devout Jew and the pagan Gentiles have in common that caused them to seek out Jesus and to come and worship him? 
It was faith. Uh, they each expressed their trust in God by responding to the revelation that was given to them. Faith in its simplest form is this, it's taking God at his word. Each person was given a little piece of God's plan and they acted on it. They took God at his word and put their faith into practice. We've already seen this demonstrated in Mary's life and, and Joseph. The angel comes to Mary and tells her that she's gonna have a child, though a virgin. And this was Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word be to, to me be fulfilled. She shows her faith by taking God at his word. Joseph was told of Mary's pregnancy and trying to figure out what to do. An angel visits him in a dream and tells him that Mary, he should take Mary as his bride and accept the responsibility of being the earthly father of the Savior of the world. He demonstrates his faith by doing all that the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. By faith, Mary and Joseph took a long journey to Bethlehem late in this pregnancy. By faith, the shepherds left their flocks uh, in the field based on God's revelation through the angels to them so that they could go and find this newborn king. So what happens in the days after this? So I thought we would look through those instances that really keep demonstrating the kind of faith of taking God at his word that people demonstrated and that we can imitate also. After his birth, for whatever reason, we know that Mary and Joseph decided to stay in Bethlehem for the next 18 to 20, 22 months, somewhere less than two years. We get that time frame, that approximate time frame of being less than two years because of the situation where King Herod orders the death of all children in the Bethlehem region that are male children that are two and under. And it was based on when the, when the Magi report that they first saw the star rise. So in this period of time, lots of things are going on. So in the days after the birth, uh, they didn't necessarily stay in that stable cave. Bethlehem would begin to clear and there'd be dwelling places for them to open up with. Uh, 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 occupy. Um, they would probably locate their family members, maybe their parents or other siblings that had traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of the census. They were all part of the family of David. They may have connected with other extended family members permanently living in Bethlehem. Since there was more construction in the Jerusalem area, there was more opportunity for Joseph to practice his, his skilled craftsman trade. They were poor, they needed to work in order to eat and live. The elaborate gifts of the, of the wise men are some 18 to 20 months away. So following the Jewish customs of their time, several things would have happened over the next seven weeks after Jesus' birth. Their obedience to these traditions was a demonstration that Mary and Joseph were living by faith. Sometime that first week after his birth, there would have been a family celebration uh, of his birth, and on the eighth day, Jesus would be presented for circumcision. 
This was a family ceremony passed down to all Jewish males since Abraham's promise some 2,000 years earlier. A blessing would have been said over Jesus, something like, blessed be the Lord our God who has sanctified us by his precepts and has given us circumcision. It would have been at this point that the infant is officially named, and again, as an act and demonstration of their faith, Mary and, G and Joseph give him the name the angels told them to give him even before he was conceived, the name Jesus. We see Mary and Joseph uh, faithfully following these Jewish traditions in raising their son. They're putting their faith into practice. Now, somewhere about day 31 after his birth, uh, the tradition is that the parents are required to dedicate the children to the Lord and to redeem the firstborn son from God. Much like our dedication this morning of coming before the Lord and presenting your child to him and doing a blessing over them and dedicating them to the Lord, that they're his child, and we've been entrusted with this unique responsibility of raising this child of God. They did, they were going to be a part of doing that, and, um, and so this practice relates back to Moses and, and the Passover uh, went prior to the uh, Hebrews leaving Egypt. The angel of death and the last plague moved over Egypt and killed all the firstborn males of both men and cattle, and men and all animals. Uh, but the Lord passed over the homes where he saw the sign of the blood on the lintels and the post of the house. From that point onward, every firstborn male in Israel belonged to God. Okay? They weren't just dedicated to him, they belonged to God. And it was the parent's responsibility to redeem them, that child, back from the Lord. They had to pay a price for him. And that price was usually five silver shekels uh, to the priest. On the 41st day after his birth, uh, after the birth of a male child, the mother is to present herself for purification. The mother is to bring to the priest an offering for her purification and cleansing. It restores her into community engagement. Some think it was sort of a protection of the mom to have this first month or 40 days with her child. Mary and Joseph bring two doves uh, as that offering because of their poverty. There's some thought that uh, this ceremony, Jesus' dedication, his redemption and Mary's purification were all done on the same day, somewhere in this 41st day. Because we read in Luke 2 this, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of, law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Jerusalem's about five miles away from Bethlehem, so it's a, a good walk. Uh, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and a pair of young pigeons, which is the, the offering for Mary's purification. 
So they may have done this all together. So they approach the Temple Mount, and on the mount you have the, the big Temple Mount, okay? Most of it is called the Court of the Gentiles. As you approach the temple, there's a series of courtyards. There's the, the court of the women, the court of the men, the priests, and then the temple itself. Probably in this area near the court of the women, they're approached by an elderly man. His name is Simeon. It is said that Simeon is a righteous and devout person. He's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. How's that for a promise? When Mary and Joseph and Jesus are approaching this area, Simeon reaches out and takes Jesus into his arms. Kind of put a little race in your heart there, Mom, to have this elderly man grab your child, right? Uh, and, he, and Simeon praises God for this child, and he blesses them. Simeon has been waiting for years for God to fulfill his promise that he would see the Savior. Right after this, whether it was right then or after they had presented their offering, uh, they get approached by a woman named Anna. And Anna is approximately 106 years old. Uh, she had been married and widowed and, and served in the temple for decades, waiting for this very moment. She comes to Mary and Joseph and Jesus and gives thanks to God for who she is now seeing. And then she goes around the temple mound telling people that she has seen the Savior. Simeon and Anna had a special word from the Lord and uh, that they would see the promised Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. Their faith took God at His word, and each day they searched the temple until God revealed that this is the one. Now, can you imagine over the decades of these two people's lives, how many young couples with infants they approached on the Temple Mount. And each time, God's Spirit revealing, this is not the one, this is not the one, this is not the one. And then one day, in fulfillment of that promise that they would see the Savior, God says, this is the one. And they rejoice and they praise and they tell others. God is going out of his way to affirm to Mary and Joseph that everything is taking place as he had planned. Uh, he was intimately involved in this overwhelming task of raising the Son of God, and he would continue to demonstrate to this young couple his provision for them. So months later, we see wise men from the East enter the picture the Magi, which is plural for Mangus, is, means rich or powerful. They were probably from Persia or a region of ancient Babylon that the Persians had conquered. They were priests and certainly as a part of that, astrologers uh, because they were observing the, the sky. 
They were a part of the royal court, much like think about Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego serving both the Babylonian and the Persian kings uh, uh, centuries earlier. They saw one night a star, a unique star. Others probably saw this star too. There is some record of other, other countries seeing it. But other people didn't attach significance to this star. They did. Even though they attached significance to it, they didn't know what it meant. And so they spent months after this sighting searching Persian and Greek and Hebrew literature to determine what this star could mean. In all that literature search, they come across a rather obscure passage in Numbers. It wasn't even given by a Jewish prophet. It was given by a Gentile, Gentile prophet named Balaam. He was paid a ransom to come and curse Israel uh, when they came into Moab, but instead he blesses them over and over and over again. And in, I think, his fifth or sixth message of blessing to Israel, he says this, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. A star will, shall rise out of Jacob. A scepter shall spring up from Israel. It's the only explanation these men could find for the significance of the star and gave it meaning. A rising star over Israel. A scepter means it's a king. So that's why they travel maybe hundreds of miles to Jerusalem and say, where is the one born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. We have come to worship him. God used natural revelation, a star, with these magi to lead them to Hebrew scripture so that that would lead them to the meaning of the star and take a trip to meet a king. Because they realized that if this prophecy came to a Gentile prophet and they as Persians saw the star and interpreted its meaning, that this king in Israel was not just significant for the Jews. It was significant for the world. That God was revealing himself and they had to come and see this new king. In Matthew 2, we read this, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped. Then they opened their treasures and presented him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here's how we understand that Jesus was older now when they came. They came to a house, not a stable. They saw a child, not an infant. He, Jesus was probably a, a toddler, about 18 to 20, 22 months or so, about Parker's size. That's why I wanted you to see Parker earlier and take note of him. These were highly educated Gentiles, but they were pagan. But they took a step of faith and came to worship a king. 
Now, after this, Joseph, now we're almost, again, 20, 22 months out from Jesus' birth. These incidences, these people had been coming and encountering them. Joseph is warned in a dream now to flee to Egypt because Herod the king is going to seek to kill them uh, and, and kill this child. And so by faith, again, Mary and Joseph leave Bethlehem and they flee to Egypt until they hear news that Herod is, is dead and it's safe for them to return to Israel. They probably use the funds of the gifts of the Magi to fund this trip, excursion into Egypt. We don't know if it was a few months or probably no more than two years there. When they return from Egypt, Mary and Joseph uh, go and settle in Nazareth, not back in Bethlehem. Galilee, when we went to Israel, our tour guide said, Galilee is where you go when you don't want to be found. Nazareth is in Galilee. It's at this point in Luke 2 that, that Luke brings conclusion to this sort of childhood uh, encounters when he says that, and the child, Jesus grew strong. He was full of wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. So what do we see and learn in these days and weeks after Jesus' birth uh, that we need to emulate? There's a wide range of people in these early scenes. There's a vast array of social economic backgrounds, people from rural settings and people from the city. There's male and female. There's a young teenage couple and a pair of seasoned senior saints. There's devout Jews and, and educated Gentiles. They all came in faith to see it, the revelation of God in Jesus. Because when they saw Jesus, they saw God's salvation. To see Jesus is to see God's light and his revelation to man. And they saw it in the form of a baby and a little child. Each person demonstrates their, their faith by taking God at his word and acting on what had been revealed to them. Because faith, simply put, is taking God at his word. And you and I have that same opportunity. We can demonstrate this same characteristic in our lives today. Multiple times in the Bible, it uses the phrase that the righteous man, and we include the righteous woman, shall live by faith. I learned this concept when I was a college student that faith is taking God at his word. I learned it from a lady named Nae Bailey on Campus Crusade for Christ staff. Later, she wrote a book called Faith is Not a Feeling. But this concept changed my life and my understanding of how to live by faith because it's rooted not in my thoughts or my feelings, but it's rooted in God's Word. Faith was taking God at His Word. When He says something, when He promises something, I'm going to count on that being true. It's taking God at his word. The Christmas story and those that encounter Mary and Joseph and Jesus afterward is an account of people taking God at his word and living by faith. Well, now you could say, look, 
at those situations, though, these people were visited by angels, and God spoke to them in dreams, and therefore they're unique, and they're not like you and I. If you think that, you're missing the point, the point of what God was doing. He kept bringing in everyday people from all stations of life they had an opportunity to respond to what God had revealed to them, whether that was a promise, a dream, or a star. And we have that same choice. We have been given everything that we need to respond to God in faith. This is what uh, Peter wrote in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at how God's provided for us in our, our godly living, our life of faith, as it were. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption is caused by uh, corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You and I are to live our lives by faith. He has given us what we need to live that faith out through His precious and magnificent promises. And as we study those and know those and come under the instruction of those, we can order our life under that and by faith, put our faith into practice and believe that those things are truer than what we think and what we feel in anything that we experience in this world. So as the world is falling apart around us, we can still live by faith. We have the Bible, this Old and New Testament uh, uh, to instruct our faith. We demonstrate our faith by taking him at his word. We believe it's truer than the world that we're experiencing, truer than what we think or feel. God's word gives us life. So let's apply uh, God's word to our daily life as an act of faith. Let's make a choice uh, uh, to live our life based on the instructions that he's given us. Let us show our obedience to that. Let us continue the legacy of Mary and Joseph and those Simeon and Anna and the wise men and the shepherds that all chose to respond to what God had revealed and come to the Savior and put their hope and their trust in Him. We get to live out that legacy as we leave the story of Christmas and move on with our lives. Mike Wilkins, uh, Wilkins uh, in his uh, NIV commentary says this, only eyes of faith are open to see God's activities because he often be, uh, performs behind the scenes of human history in unexpected ways to bring about his purpose. When we live by faith, we connect with that purpose, and we align our lives to it. Let us spend this next year seeking the Savior, living out the truth of His words in our lives. Let us 
tell others about who we've come to know, that this infant born is a king. And when you look at Jesus, you look at salvation because the grace and love of God has been revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your abundant grace in our life. We thank you that you instruct us in the way of faith. Thank you for the Christmas story, for the celebrations that we have around that. But let us not forget the faith demonstrated by these individuals who came, saw, and worshiped the living Savior Jesus. Amen.